What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites, and one of our favorite subjects to cover on this show are stories about American history and history in general, and all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life, and if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. Speaking of which, up next, a history story from Hillsdale College President Larry Arn on a perilous time in world history. 
After World War II, the Soviet Union, our former ally, had become anything but, and the threat of another world war hung over the heads of everyone after they would renege on treaties and stand diametrically opposed to the West. A massive division was appearing between us and them. The person who would give a name to this division was Winston Churchill at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. After being invited to speak there at a low point in his career, here's Dr. Larry Arn with a story of the Iron Curtain speech. It was a world-changing fact when he got this invitation, and it came at a low moment for him. The July 5th, 1945 election, when they got the votes counted, Churchill had lost in a landslide. And then in October, three months after, he gets this letter from the president of Westminster College, a man named McClay, and come and give a talk. And there's a PS handwritten by Harry Truman. It's a wonderful college in my home state. If you can come, I will introduce you. And that's a big deal. And that's, you know, wow, he's an important man still. And of course, you never can know when you've been the most important man in the world, whether you will be after you lose your job. Churchill gets there the day before, March the 4th, 1946. And it's very important that Churchill is a private citizen. I mean, he's a member of parliament, but he's not an officer or representative of the government. And it's also important that with the labor government, with whom Churchill disagreed about everything and fought like cats and dogs with them, they agreed on one thing, and that was policy toward the Soviet Union. And so Churchill was liberated by that. If the government had been putting fetters on him, it could have been a flap and messed up everything. It's worth saying the man who was the foreign minister in that government was a left-wing union organizer that Churchill met during a big strike in the 20s and fell in love with him and brought him into the government. And uh, he became a very important man, and he was faithful to his anti-communism. And, you know, the world was hanging on a thread. There were a whole bunch of events going on in the world. The Soviet Union announced that they would not leave Persia on the treaty-bound date that they were supposed to. And they were putting pressure on the Turks. And, uh, you know, Turkey's important to the Soviet Union, and they've always been tension between them because they're at the mouth of the Black Sea, and if the Soviet Union can control that, it can get into the Mediterranean. A few days before this invitation, Truman sent the body of the lately died Turkish ambassador back to Turkey with a huge naval flotilla led by the USS Missouri, the biggest battleship in the world, the one on which the Japanese surrender was taken. The Soviet Union had overwhelming power they had a multiple of the tanks of the United States, a multiple of the fighter aircraft. We began a big build campaign about these years after the war, having stopped for a while, and they still gained on us. And the fear was if the Soviet Union attacks to the West, they will reach the channel in six weeks and there's nothing that can stop them, except for one thing, American nuclear weapons. And that makes an anxious calculation, right? Because will America use those nuclear weapons to save countries far away? And they had to worry about that a lot. And it's one of the reasons that Churchill was insistent and the labor government agreed that Britain should develop its own nuclear weapons. There's a document in the public record office produced every year until 
the end of Churchill's premiership, but the uh, document was production of the foreign ministry and the defense department. Its title was The Likelihood of a General War with the Soviet Union. They just think that could happen. And, uh, you know, NATO is formed in these years, and the Marshall Plan, which is aid to Europe from the United States, is launched. And that was very much to help Western Europe recover and get ready to defend itself. So that was the grim calculations that were going on at the time. When Churchill goes to America, he gives a speech at the University of Miami. It's very good about education. And then he goes to the White House on the 4th of March, and he and Truman ride down on the train. And when uh, Churchill gave the speech, it begins in a humorous way. He says, I'm a private citizen. There's nothing here but what you see. And if you look at a photograph of him giving that speech, what you see is him giving the speech, and just to his right sits the President of the United States. And that was, that was like really, really artful. You know, it starts out, the overall strategic conception. Churchill says that with some humor. He says, American generals like to say that, but of course, what he's making fun of was that it's a redundant phrase. And uh, what is it that we're aiming for? And the, roughly, he says, the paraphrase, nothing less than the health and safety, the freedom and comfort of every home in every land around the world. That's a, you know, sweeping, huge thing and a grand ambition. And the rest of the speech, by the way, is a qualification on that. He defines his terms as he goes. The speech actually, through the course of it, it narrows to a point. And the point is what he thinks is the most important point, which is the special relationship between the United States and Great Britain. And you're listening to Dr. Larry Arnn tell the story of the Iron Curtain speech. And Dr. Arnn, in addition to being the president of Hillsdale College, is one of the world's foremost experts on Sir Winston Churchill. When we come back, more with Dr. Larry Arnn here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we return to Our American Stories and our story on Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech. When we last left off, Churchill was explaining what exactly the West, that is, the free democracies, were aiming for. Let's continue with the story. Here again is Dr. Larry Arn. There isn't any reason, science being what it is, he says, for the world not to enter a grand period of peace. But there are these two marauders, war and tyranny. And then he gives detailed plans what to do about each of them. And 
about war, his first solution is the United Nations. He's a great believer in collective security. It'll sound strange to American ears. We don't really think of it as terribly important anymore. He thought then that the way you stop these tyrants with these modern, extremely dangerous weapons, something he learned in 1899 at the Battle of Omdurman in the Sudan in North Africa. He watched the first machine guns called Maxim guns deployed by the British mow down an Arab, a dervish army, they were called, and take no casualties itself. Most everybody who saw that rejoiced at that. Churchill was horrified by it because he just had the imagination to think, what if both sides have weapons like this? And of course, that dark vision came true in the First World War. So if we could all band together, wishing peace, because plenty is possible for everyone now, Churchill said, which I believe is very much the case today, and indeed is being realized all over the world, then we can focus on that and we can live our lives and let people alone. But then the first caveat comes when he's talking about the United Nations. He says it has to have constabulary, it has to have force. Then he says that it would be criminal madness to release the secrets of the nuclear bomb into the wide world at this stage when it's so divided. Only when we've realized, he says, the brotherhood of man at some indeterminate future date would that be a wise course. And then, for the first time in the speech, he introduces differences in regimes or ways of people governing. And he says the nations that have the secret of the nuclear bomb, United States, Britain, Canada, they can be trusted with it because they represent their people and they won't use it for ill. Whereas if it gets into the hands of these nations that rule by force, and he doesn't mention the Soviet Union, but he does later, but that's what he means, then Lord knows what they'll do with it. You know, soon the Soviet Union would have the nuclear bomb, by the way, because they stole it from us through spies. But he dreaded that day, and he thought, in the meantime, that's the thing, the only thing that can stop him. He's thinking at large here because he wants to guarantee a future where we don't destroy ourselves in these world wars anymore. And this is his plan to achieve that. It requires a massive adjustment because the Second World War was fought and won in quantity terms much more by the Soviet Union than anyone else. They had uh, simply enormous force of the Allies. I think they took four-fifths of the casualties, 80%. They're our great allies, because it would have been a different story without them. And then, for the first time in the speech, he introduces the expression Iron Curtain. Churchill had used the expression twice before in regard to the Soviet Union, but not in a place so famous. And he, by the way, titled the speech The Sinews of Peace. You know, sinews are what connect muscle to bone. But it became known as the Iron Curtain speech because that was a dramatic thing to say, and it infuriated Stalin. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. He said from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, so that means right across the middle of Europe, all the way, an iron curtain has descended upon Europe. And behind this iron curtain, the secret police, the uh, regulation of previously private behavior, 
All of those things that are common to totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is that kind of government where it's so thorough that they recruit your children to be spies upon you. And people in 1984 in that novel, but also in the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, their children are forced to go to school, a certain kind of school, and they're taught terrible things. But, you know, little kids kind of like that because it's like a big chance to grow up. And they're taught that the family is unimportant, that the state provides everything, and they become spies on their, on their parents. So that's what's behind the Iron Curtain. You know, it's vicious and it's thorough. It's very difficult to get away from it. So that world, that's uh, the darkest world that has ever existed, tied with Nazi Germany and the worst periods in Chinese history. Churchill conceived the British Empire as a elaborate system of voluntary association. And, but for India, all of the major British colonies were self-governing. So, you know, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States as an ally. Those were all countries that had their own government. And they contributed a little over 45% of the British war effort in both world wars. And Britain was unable to conscript a single soldier from any of those places. Churchill's point all the time was, this is an association of principle and love, right? And the wars, both world wars, would have been different without that love, which was all over the British Empire. You know, we regard it as a dirty word today, but it very much was not. So the legacy of the speech. Churchill indicates a foreign policy built on a union of the free countries. This foreign policy would be defensive first, keep the Soviet Union and other tyrannical nations from dominating the world, and then it would exude a constant pressure toward freedom and justice everywhere in the world. But he says in the important passage in, the, in this Iron Curtain speech, he says, it is not our duty to intervene in the affairs of nations that we have not conquered in war. And so this is a long-term strategy to solidify the free countries known as the West and to, through that unity, deter the Soviet Union. And it's a little bit like Lincoln's strategy about, uh, about slavery. Uh, Lincoln and Churchill both regarded the slavery in America history and the slavery that was the Soviet Union, the systems that won't work. Eventually they're going to collapse, which is by the way what happened to the Soviet Union after two full generations of torturing people to death and distorting their lives and their minds and managing their families. After two generations of that, it collapsed of its own weight because it's stupid, right? It's not the way human beings should be governed. The classics teach us that tyrannies have a lot of trouble lasting a long time. And so Churchill thought, as he thought with Hitler, time is on our side. We don't have to undertake the disaster of trying to conquer them with their nuclear weapons and their massive armies. We're just going to have to contain them. That became the strategy, containment. And then get stronger ourselves and live our lives in freedom and exercise the maximum influence on them 
and everybody else in the world that we can. And that was the plan that was followed, and it ultimately worked. And we have not had a world war since the second. We're, of course, lapsing into the dangerous idea that that can't happen anymore. We ought to be aware that it can happen again, and we ought to be ready for it. And you've been listening to Dr. Larry Oren. A great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery himself, a Hillsdale College graduate. And there is nobody better to talk about such things, all things Churchill, than Dr. Oren. The story of the Iron Curtain speech, here on Our American Stories. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. 
like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This is Our American Stories, and as you know, we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, particularly history. And all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. For the last century, Americans have honored our country by singing words that were written by a tone-deaf lawyer to the tune of a British social club song. Francis Frank Scott Key was not someone you would have picked to write our national anthem. Here's Mark Liebson, author of a biography on Key, What So Proudly We Hailed, to tell us more about the unlikely events that brought us our national anthem. And here's the story of how Francis Scott Key, the big Washington, D.C. lawyer, the pious patriot, wrote the words that will become our national anthem, what will become known as the Star Spangled Banner. This story starts during the War of 1812 with the Battle of Bladensburg, Bladensburg, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. This is one of the most embarrassing defeats in U.S. military history. Uh, The British, who, you know, changed the complexion of the War of 1812 after defeating Napoleon in 1814 and sent thousands of crack troops over here. They were raiding up the Chesapeake Bay. They came to the outskirts of Washington, and they overran just a pathetic group of last-minute thrown-together militiamen on August 26th, overran them and came into Washington, and most people remember that they burned the White House, Treasury Department, and other public buildings. An embarrassing defeat, not so much in the terms of how many were killed. There weren't many because the, the British just moved right through. So after the Battle of Bladensburg, the British left Washington, They went back to the Chesapeake Bay, and they got on their ships, and they headed toward Baltimore, which people didn't know at the time. But when they did, they took prisoner a man named Dr. William Beans, who owned a a farm in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, which was on the way out east of Washington, D.C. And he made the mistake of taking a couple of British stragglers prisoner. When the Brits saw them, they were not very happy about it. And so they took Dr. Beans prisoner. He was an older man. He was in his 60s. They took him away, and they headed up to Baltimore, which was, like I said, not known at the time. Prisoner releases and prisoner exchanges were common during the War of 1812. It happened all the time. And 
The man who was chosen to argue for Dr. Bean's release was a man named Francis Scott Key. He was a big lawyer in Washington, D.C. He was born and raised in Maryland in what was then Frederick County, north of the city of Frederick. He went to law school. He read the law at St. John's College in Annapolis, and he had a thriving practice in Washington, D.C. He was known for his eloquence in front of juries. He could talk people into things. He was asked by the family of Dr. Beans to arrange his release. He was a member of a prominent family in Washington, Francis Scott Key was. By the way, they called him Frank, so everybody called him Frank, so we'll call him Frank for the rest of the story. Frank Key uh, was asked by the Beans family to arrange the release. He got permission from President Madison, and on September 2nd, 1814, he got on his horse and he rode up to Baltimore. When he got to Baltimore, he met up with a U.S. Army lieutenant colonel named John Skinner. Now, Skinner's job was to arrange uh, prisoner releases and prisoner exchanges. So Key met up with Skinner. They got on a, a small American ship, and they went out and looked for the British fleet, and they found them. And they were welcomed on board the flagship of the British fleet. They made their case. They did it over lunch or dinner, wine was consumed, and Frank used his powers of persuasion and the British agreed. One of the things that helped his cause was that before they left Washington, before he left Washington, he picked up a packet of letters, letters from British prisoners who had been taken prisoner during the Battle of Bladensburg and the sacking of Washington, D.C., and they testified to the fact that they were being treated very well by the Americans. So that convinced the Brits, and they said, we'll let Dr. Beans go. However, we have some work to do. We are going to destroy the city of Baltimore. Now, the British purposely did not burn any private homes in Washington. They only went after public buildings, but not so in Baltimore. Why did they want to destroy Baltimore? Well, you know, we may forget, but as in the case of most of our wars, before we got into the War of 1812, it was a very controversial thing. Basically, it was a north-south split, with Southerners generally in favor of going to war and Northerners against it. Francis Scott Key was born in the North and grew up there, but he, you really have to categorize him as a Southerner in outlook. You know, Maryland was a state in which slavery was legal. His family owned slaves. He grew up on a plantation, and he did have a conservative Southern outlook. But he was against the Americans going into the War of 1812. But Key's views changed on the war when the Brits started invading up the Chesapeake Bay. He actually joined a Georgetown militia unit. He went out to the Chesapeake, served in a, as a quartermaster officer. He did not serve very long, just about a week, and he got tired of the war, so he quit and he went back to Georgetown. Uh, but he did support the war after that. Now, why were the Brits so intent on destroying Baltimore? Well, the country was divided, but not in Baltimore. The people of Baltimore were very war hawkish in the War of 1812. And, you know, the U.S. was not prepared militarily to go into this war, especially with the Navy. So the call went out to private ship owners if they wanted to use their, uh, let their ships be used in the cause against the Brits. They could. And Baltimore led the country in lending private ships. They were called Baltimore Clippers. They were very fast ships, and they gave the Brits a lot of trouble on the seas, and the Brits did not like this. One British newspaper writer referred to Baltimore as a nest of thieves. So, Francis Scott Key 
Dr. Beans and Skinner were taken back to their American ship. Sometimes you hear that they were held prisoner during the Battle of Baltimore. That was not quite true. They couldn't leave, but it wasn't like they were below decks, you know, on bread and water. They were on the deck, and they had a bird's-eye view of what became the largest sustained bombing in military history to that time. The Brits had 19 ships out there in Baltimore Harbor. Four of them were bomb ships. These were squat ships with giant 250-pound cannons firing away. On that night of December 13th, 14th, some 1,500 bombs, mortars, and rockets were fired onto the city of Baltimore. Rockets, you know, this was only the second time in the history of war that rockets were used. They were called Congreve rockets. They looked like what we know rockets look like, long and cylindrical with fins on the bottom, but they didn't have any guidance system. The rockets red glare and bombs were bursting in air, but they weren't aimed very well, and there was very, very um, well. There were no, there were no, there was no loss of life in Baltimore or at Fort McHenry, which fired back with plenty of cannon on its own. Although the people in Baltimore were terrified because the houses were shaking. I mean, that's how terrifying the bombardment was. Plus, there was a giant storm that night. A thunderstorm could have been a tornado, could have been a hurricane. We don't really know. But it was an amazing night of 1,500 bombs, rockets going off, thunder, lightning. And there also was a land component to the Battle of Baltimore, which we don't have to get into very much here, but just to know that the Brits tried under the cover of that bombing to attack, and they got pretty close to the city, but uh, their leading general was shot and killed off of his horse, and that sort of took the steam out of the land component. Plus, Baltimore was uh, fortified much better than Washington was. You know, uh, the people in Baltimore could see the fires of Washington burning on August 26th, so they were prepared. And we're listening to Mark Leapson tell an important chapter of American history, the War of 1812. Uh, the Revolutionary War was continuing. This was chapter two. And great storytelling by Mark Leapson on the life of Francis Scott Key. When we come back, more of Mark Leapson, his book, by the way, What So Proudly We Hailed, pick it up at Amazon or the usual suspects. When we come back, more of this remarkable American story, the story of our national anthem here on Our American Stories. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. (laughs) 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. And we continue with our American stories and the story of our national anthem, which of course means telling the story of Francis Scott Key. Let's return to author Mark Leapson. It lasted 25 straight hours, but then in the middle of the night, at about 3 o'clock in the morning, everything stopped. Um, and Francis Scott Key and Beans and Skinner, who were pacing the deck, didn't know what happened. It was dark, it was foggy, rainy, and all they knew that was the battle was over. So they were pacing the deck, and they waited until the dawn's early light, and Key looked out of his glass, and he could see that Fort McHenry had a flag flying over it, but, you know, those flags were big. They were made of wool. It had rained all night. The flag was just hanging there. He couldn't tell who it, what it was. That flag was taken down. Another flag was put up. There was a little bit of a breeze, and what did he see? He saw that our flag was still there. And this inspired him to write the words that would become the national anthem. You know, Francis Scott Key, Frank Key, was a amateur poet, um, he wasn't a good amateur poet, but his poetry was never meant to be shown beyond family and friends, which makes it even more ironic that the words that he wrote that day, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans know those words. 
The other thing that people might not know about uh, the Battle of Baltimore is that it was a turning point in the War of 1812. There were peace talks going on, but after the British slunk out of Baltimore, you know, he realized when he saw the stars and stripes, our flag was still there, the British ships were gone. We had won, the peace talks continued. The Treaty of Ghent was signed in January of 1815. But Frank knew that Baltimore was saved. He had a letter in his pocket. Now, people also often say that he wrote the words on an envelope. Well, you know, technically, there were no envelopes back then. There were no envelopes. It wasn't technically, but letters themselves were the envelopes. So on the back of the letter, Frank scrawled a few verses. He and Skinner and Beans were released. He went back to Baltimore to a hotel and finished the four stanzas in the hotel. Now, what happened next, there are a lot of question marks about. We don't know the details. One reason is because even though Francis Scott Key lived for 30 more years, he spoke in public about it just once, did not mention the flag, and in all the letters that he wrote that have been uncovered, well, he mentions it only once in a letter to a friend in early October, and then he writes about that night, but he doesn't, again, mention writing the words that will become national anthem. He talks about how brave the Americans were and how much he didn't like the British officers. What we know about what happened next was from a book that came out in the 1850s, and it was written by Key's brother-in-law, Roger Brooke Tawney, who was married to Frank Key's only sister. They were very close, the two families, and we know Roger Brooke Tawney as Chief Justice of the United States. He claims that this is what Frank told him what happened. Now, we can corroborate a lot of this with good primary source evidence, such as newspaper stories and some journals and diaries. So here's what we think happened after that. Somebody, could have been Tawny, could have been another one of Key's brother-in-laws, took what Frank wrote to a printer, because we do know that the next day, those verses appeared on a broadsheet and they were plastered all over Baltimore. In fact, people, the defenders of Fort McHenry had them. The title was not the Star Spangled Banner. The title was Defense of Fort McHenry. And it said on there to be sung to the tune of Anacreon in Heaven. So what is Anacreon in Heaven? Anacreon in Heaven is a song that was the theme song of a British men's club called the Anacreontic Society. And these men would meet at taverns for dinner and for drinks. They would play their song. They would drink. They would discuss issues of the day. You often hear that the national anthem is sung to the tune of a British drinking song. Not quite true. It's not in the category of 99 bottles of beer on the wall. It was a little more high-minded than that, but it was the theme song of a kind of like a highfalutin men's book club that that met in taverns. So there's a little bit of truth to that. Now, it was not uncommon for the words of songs to be put to tunes that people knew in the early 19th century. And that's exactly what happened with this one. And there were the people who know this stuff have counted something like 75, 50 to 75 songs that were put to Anacreon in heaven, including Adams and Liberty, which was a very popular patriotic song. We do know that in November of 1814, the song was printed on sheet music by Carr's Music Store in Baltimore, and the title was changed to The Star Spangled Banner. And, you know, uh, there's been controversy or just a 
you know, historians have not agreed until relatively recently whether or not Francis Scott Key had in mind the fact that he was writing a song that night. Until relatively recently, historians believe that he wasn't because he wasn't a songwriter. He did write two hymns. You know, he was a very religious man. He almost went into the, the Episcopal priesthood. Uh, there's a letter that he wrote to the Bishop of Baltimore in which the bishop had asked him to join the priesthood and Frank said he really wanted to, but uh, you know, he had a family and he needed to feed his family. He didn't have the, he needed to make money as a lawyer. He, had, he wound up having 11 children. He, he was very active in his church. He was a lay minister and he was very religious as the words of the Star Spangled Banner indicate. So was he writing a song or not? Historians have changed their mind in the last four or five years, and the people who studied this now believe that he did have the song in mind, even though he wasn't a musical man. There are several reasons for this. One is that he wound up writing these words in rhyme and meter that fit exactly the song, and also that, you know, a few years earlier, there was a dinner given in Washington, D.C. for Stephen Decatur, the, the, the hero of the Tripolitan Wars. And a song was written for that and played that night by Francis Scott Key. There's an article in the newspaper in Georgetown that describes it, and it includes the words. And in those words are the words Star Spangled Banner. So putting that all together, historians do believe that Frank had in mind that he was writing a song even though he was just a poet, an amateur poet that night. The Star Spangled Banner did not become the national anthem until officially until 1931. We did, the United States did not have a national anthem until 1931, but it was one of the songs that was played at, at uh, patriotic gatherings such as Fourth of July within a few years after he wrote it. All throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century became more and more popular, but still it was only one of many songs that were played, including Yankee Doodle Dandy and others. And it wasn't until 1931 that Congress enacted a resolution that made the Star Spangled Banner the national anthem. It was controversial. There were hearings on Capitol Hill. People argued against it, saying it was hard to sing, which people still argue today. They said it was written by a Brit, the tune, and, you know, others said it glorified war. The proponents of it brought in a soprano to sing it on Capitol Hill during the hearings, and that sort of turned the tide, and the Star Spangled Banner became the national anthem uh, in 1931, even though it was written in 1814. And one last thing, talking about a little bit of irony here. Uh, I told you that Francis Scott Key was not a good poet, and if you don't believe me, just read his poetry. You can read it online. But he also was, you know, unmusical. There, there was an article that I found when I was doing research for my book, What So Proudly We Hailed, the biography of Francis Scott Key, uh, that uh, had a, an, it was an interview with a Philadelphia newspaper man with one of Francis Scott Key's granddaughters. And, you know, they always would ask, you know, tell us about your grandfather, tell us about your father, well, you know, did he play an instrument, et cetera, et cetera. And the woman said, no, as a matter of fact, he was unmusical. And then she told an anecdote, which may or may not be true. She said that he was in Alabama in 1833. He was doing some legal work for President Andrew Jackson. And he was at some kind of gathering. And as would happen, they, a band was there and they played the Star Spangled Banner. And so Francis Scott Key was sitting with some people. The band was playing. And after it was over, the granddaughter told this newspaper reporter, my grandfather turned to the woman next to him and said, that was 
a beautiful air, a beautiful tune, what, what, what's the name of it? So, you know, it's probably apocryphal, but it does go to show that that man who wrote that song, the man who wrote the song that so many hundreds of millions of Americans know the first verse of, was a bad poet, and he most likely was tone deaf. And beautiful work on that piece by Robbie, as always. And a special thanks to Mark Leapson, author of What So Proudly We Hailed. A tone-deaf, bad poet ends up writing our national anthem. As always, our stories, our history stories, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. The story of the tone-deaf, bad poet who wrote the national anthem, Francis Scott Key's story, Frank Key's story, here on Our American Stories. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.